Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your co-host. We have another exciting show for you with not one, but two guests today. Featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, featured by Good Morning America 3 as one of their podcasts of the month and named by Apple Podcasts as one of the best shows of 2021. Their book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversation, was featured on MSNBC's Morning Joe, received star trade reviews, and continues to be in demand with readers. And their brand new book, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. Sounds like a current topic to me. I'm talking about the host of the Pantsuit Politics podcast, Sarah Stewart Howard, one with a two-wing and Beth Silver's two with a three wing. It's getting fiery in here now, folks. As always, super glad to have you here with us. Where would we be without you, our listeners? That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. Allow me to point you to the man of the hour, our host, Ian Crump. Man, we are so delighted to have you on. I was uh, honored to be on your podcast, The Pantsuits Politics podcast. It was a great time and uh, delighted to see you once again. Now, just uh, so by way of background, tell us a little bit about you, about the podcast and about your new book uh, titled Now What? To Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. Great title. It's pantsuit singular. Okay. That's the Enneagram one talking right there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> Believes. I wish, I wish we had Love just that. kept that's it rolling. Awesome. <laughs> okay. That's going I in there. Stopped. That's all I'm going to say. And that made me edit it in a way that we love. Okay. Welcome Sarah Stewart, Holland Enneagram one with a two wing and Beth Silvers Enneagram two with a three wing. Welcome to typology. Thank you. We're so glad to be here. Thank you. And I'm really glad too. I had the pleasure of being on uh, your podcast, the Pantsuit Politics Podcast. It was really fun. Glad to have you here in our studio. Beth, let's start with you. I, I want to know uh, about your podcast. I want to know about your new book, which by the way is titled, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. Pantsuit Politics was born in 2015. It was all Sarah's idea. Sarah had a blog <laughs> at the time. She was writing about the experience of having children. I knew her from college and followed her work. I wrote for her a couple of times. And then she said, would you like to start a podcast? And I said, I don't know what a podcast is, but uh, sure. <laughs> and so we started working together and figuring it out. And we're very surprised by how many people came along for that journey. Really, what we try to do is have conversations about politics that you have around your dinner table with friends, where you're just trying to figure things out together. And you're trying to manage how you feel and what you have the energetic capacity for and how you want to understand and participate in the world better. Mm. So we don't ask people to listen to agree with either of us about anything, just to think with us and care with us and try to stay in it, even when it is very overwhelming. Mm. And our book is just a continuation of that. This is our second book. We wrote our first book. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening back in 2019. And this is just a continuation of that journey and the journey we've taken on the podcast. You know, the podcast itself has been a real journey because that's what we wanted, right? We wanted these conversations to work on us and change us. And that is what they have done. Um, that is what we hope they have done for our listeners. I always tell people, you know, about our books or about our podcast. It's it's for people who know politics are important, but can't stomach the anxiety and pressure often following the news can produce. Like we're for the, we're not for the person who consumes every political podcast out there, although we absolutely have those types of listeners. Um, but we're definitely for people who want to process the news, but leave feeling um, better informed and even empowered and not anxious and angry. And as I understand it, Sarah, you two come from different perspectives, politically speaking. Well, I think that is still true. When we started our podcast, it was more about different party perspectives. Beth at the time was a Republican and I uh, was and remain a Democrat. And so we, we really kind of played up the bipartisan angle in the beginning. But again, the conversations worked on us and 
Beth ended up changing her party affiliation, but I think it is still true that we see things differently. It is still true that I see a much more active role for the federal government and Beth sees a much more active role at the local level. Um, You know, it's almost like when we were sort of freed from that party identification, we could really explore the ways we saw things differently um, because there wasn't that um, really high stakes laden um, feeling like you have to represent the entire party perspective, which we really never wanted to do. We didn't want this to be a podcast with pundits, right? That's not who we are. We're just moms. We live in Kentucky. We're both trained attorneys and um, we try to bring our life experiences and our expertise to these perspectives in a, in a fresh way. Well, it's such a service to the world in a world in which um, political perspectives uh, have divided us so dramatically. Mm-hmm. And we have really failed to understand how to engage in conversation with each other that leads to understanding and compassion and uh, curiosity. Uh, And, you know, uh, so I'm really glad that you're out there demonstrating what that can look like. Beth, I am really, I don't know if when I was on your show, if this had happened already, but how fascinating that you have changed political perspectives on this journey or affiliation, if you will. It is not easy to do that in public. I think it would have been very easy for me to do in private, um, Mm -hmm. much easier than telling the world we are Sarah from the left and Beth from the right, and then suddenly we aren't anymore. But the decision was not a complicated one for me because I don't have a strong degree of affiliation Uh, I am not about group membership ever. I was a bad Republican when I was a Republican. I disagreed with the party on all kinds of things. It was, as Sarah said, for me, more about who makes decisions and how close to the problem are those people making decisions. I grew up on a dairy farm. So who regulates, you know, who understands what you're going through as they regulate? That's very important to me. But as the the landscape of the parties changed so dramatically in 2016, 2017, it just became clear that the Democratic Party doesn't represent me perfectly, but it represents me more accurately than the Republican Party does at this point. Kentucky is a closed primary state. I've got to be in a party to vote in primaries and voting in primaries is extremely important. So, um, So that's what I've chosen for now. And we'll see how things shift in the future. And I, I fully intend to continue to shift in my political journey. I, I think what I've learned more than anything over the past six years is that I don't want to harden in any way. I want to be willing to keep learning and growing and um, and moving to best say, here's how I understand the world today. Well, I'm, I really appreciate the fact that you've made that journey in public, but I'm going to make an observation uh, Enneagram wise. And actually, I'm going to bring in another personality assessment tool called the Big Five just for a moment. I would expect that an Enneagram 2 would have aligned initially with a with the Democratic Party and an Enneagram 1 with the Republican Party. <laughs> I know. Uh, because ones, uh, according to the Big Five, you, you tend to fall into what's a very high level of conscientiousness. And people who demonstrate high levels of conscientiousness skew toward more conservative politics. Whereas twos, Beth, um, have high degrees of empathy uh, and what's called agreeableness, and they typically skew democratic. And yet, in the beginning of your journey, you were the inverse of that. Do you have any, like, maybe some insights to that? Well, I can say for me that place is, is a character, right? Because... I grew up in this rural setting. The people I had empathy for in the 90s as I was growing up were really struggling with the federal government. They were really struggling with what they saw as overburdening, expensive regulation that put a lot of people out of business. And so I think it is the the context in which I grew up that really shaped how I viewed the major parties. And and again, the time frame is relevant to that too. I think it it does make sense that I am aligned in a more progressive direction as an adult, but also as an adult who is removed mostly from that rural context in which I was raised. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, I grew up in a very conservative environment as well. I was raised Southern Baptist. And so I was a 
passionate conservative, and I have the high school editorials to prove it. Um, <laughs> in you know my teenage years, which the you know teenage legalism plus Enneagram One energy is just like a really really potent combination. Um, then I went to a liberal arts university, which is where I met Beth at Transylvania University, and I think I just had professors who you know knew how to teach and convince and like I think really hit on that justice that justice drive that like the the and a desire to see things you know put right and so to me I got there and I and I never even heard the term third world when I got to college and so I got there and I learned all these things and it's like I did a complete 180 my freshman year as a political science um major you know every like you know conservative family's worst nightmare like you get to college and you become a crazy liberal although my the women in my family were more liberal than the men in my family and so um and I think I just I I I applied all that Enneagram one filter um to being a progressive and being a really good democrat and it wasn't until I started the podcast with Beth that I think I started to realize like well that made me feel good but it didn't change anything like mm -hmm. I, you know, it made me feel good to send that Atlantic long read and point out all the ways people were wrong and uncaring, but it didn't move the needle any. And that's what I really care about, right? If I, I really want to move the needle, I don't want to just feel good. I don't want to feel self-righteous, even though it is absolutely my favorite emotion. It does not serve my sort of political purposes. And I, so I think, you know, it's, again, it's another long journey. And I think that's, that's what we always want. We want a journey with our politics. We don't want to get stuck in one place where instead of becoming a journey, it just becomes our identity and that's it. And that's the long and short of it. And I think that's, you know, that's what we really try to work through together on our podcast and with our community. Mm. Yes. You know, um, and I want to make it clear to our listeners that when I say more conscientious types tend toward conservatism and uh, whereas uh, types like twos sort of skew and nines can skew more uh, toward a liberal side, that's not a hard and fast rule, right? I, I don't. I want to make that very clear. It's just kind of a trendy thing, and there is a correlation between personality and political affiliation that most people don't realize is the case. And by the way, Enneagram ones, uh, again, speculation here, but I'm pretty sure on some of them, for sure, I think Hillary Clinton is a one. Yeah, one with a two wing. That's what I was going to say when you said that yep. they skewed us. Uh -huh. I was like, yeah, but me and Hillary over here, one know, with a two wing. I know. And Janet Reno, mm. uh, Elizabeth Warren. Believe that 100%. Uh, I think Nancy Pelosi. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I'm not saying these are hard and fast rules because reformer ones are very concerned with issues of justice, just like eights are. Yeah. So I don't want to, you know, again, say it's a hard and fast rule. I just see it usually skew that way in terms of, of direction. And, you know, I think that's, um, I don't know, it's an interesting thing maybe to take on somewhere in the future, you know, different personality types and political affiliation, unless it just pisses everybody off. And then I don't <laughs> really want to spend a lot of time. Well, it's so interesting, though, as you were saying that, I thought, well, isn't that interesting that you see these patterns of personality, which is, you know, 100% um, my experience to a certain extent that what is driving people's political affiliation are issues of personal history, cultural experience, identity. You know, we all think we're like sitting down with the policy books, but we're not. We're not doing that. Um, and I just thought, well, it's so interesting to, to say that, which I think is true. And also think about the way we're siloing each other, which means two things are happening, right? Either we're um, sorting by personality, which I don't really think is probably what's happening, or um, we're maybe not as uh, closely, like, and tightly affiliated together in our communities as we think we are, because that even when we're siloing, all those different personality types are represented, and they probably might be thinking things a little differently than you do, and you just don't realize it. And I mean that in progressive circles and conservative circles. I think often people, that social pressure is real, and so I hear all the time from people, well, I just don't, I can't say anything. No one agrees with me. And I always say like, you'd be surprised. Like you would be surprised how many people maybe think are confused by that or it's, or it's making them uncomfortable, but they just don't feel like they can say so. Because like you said, like it's, we're all viewing it through the, the prism of personality and that's never going to be consistent. Even if you re live and 
you know, East Texas or the Bronx. Right. Mm -hmm. There is, by the way, folks, if you're interested, if you pump in big five and uh, political orientation, all kinds of articles are going to come up. Mm. And just about personality traits and uh, the, um, you know, the typical political orientations. And it's very fascinating. So you all know the big five is a very, very accurate uh, personal personality assessment, different from uh, in approach from the Enneagram. But it's a fascinating topic about personality and political uh, affiliation. So definitely go out and and check those things out. What do you think are the biggest differences between an Enneagram one and an Enneagram two? And what's it like to work together? (laughs) How about you, Beth? Let's start with you. I should also point out she's married to an Enneagram one as well. She loves us. I'm a magnet. (laughs) She's a magnet for these people who know how things should be. (laughs) I think that Something that I have learned in working with Sarah about the difference between a one and a two is our orientation towards trust. And maybe this reflects in our politics a little bit too. Understanding through, you know, a lot of therapy that my underlying motivation is always, I really want people to love me. (laughs) Um, It has helped me realize that some of what I've been doing my whole life is not trusting that people will love me. Mm. And Sarah absolutely trusts that people will love her. And in fact, she expects them to. We go out and we meet people and Sarah instantly collects them. She anticipates that they, of course, want to spend time with us. Of course, they want to be our forever friend. Of course, they want us to stay in their guest room when we visit their city next. And I don't trust any of that. And I think that some of that plays out in in our sense of, for example, how the government should help solve certain problems. But on a business level, it's been really helpful to work with someone who trusts that people want what we have to offer. They want to support our work, that we should let people be in this with us um, instead of feeling always like we have to constantly be earning that. I'm the person who says we need to do more for the audience. We need to add an episode. We need to do another thing. And Sarah says, no, like we've we've done enough. We have this relationship. We can be secure in it. And that's really been valuable to me on a personal and professional level. Fascinating. Sarah, do you spend a lot of time on the high side of seven? Your security point? That's what I was saying. I mean, I would like to think I do. I would like to think that I'm integrated and, you know, and moving that way. I definitely think I spend more time there now in my forties and late thirties than I did in my Mm (laughs) twenties. I can absolutely tell you that. Um, I don't, you know, I think Beth has worked on that instinct as a one to see thing as black and white, almost more than any other relationship, except for perhaps my husband, who's a Enneagram six. Um, Just this idea and parenting too, which I think we were kind of doing together. Our, Our children are very close in age. And I think you know, that sense of it's not that simple, you know, there's always nuance. It's more complicated than that. Like, I think being in my, in a partnership with Beth and these like long conversations constantly about the, the, just the nuance. I mean, when we started our show, one of our our big taglines was keep it nuanced. And so seeing that, um, has been really important to me. And I, I think what she said about trust is so interesting because I can, tr- I have a lot of trust and confidence when I look at big picture things as an Enneagram one. I can see the big picture well. I can do meta analysis, like sort of high up level analysis really well, very comfortable with that. Um, I don't trust my instincts as far as like individual needs. You know, Beth is very driven by individual needs. Um, and I don't trust my instincts is that she does an advice column, which I thought like I'd always want to do is she does like an advice video series. Um, cause I do like to give people advice that I know, but like when strangers write in and ask us what to do, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know you, you know, <laughs> I have no idea. I have no trust in myself as far as sort of individual needs. Cause I just kind of feel like, well, how, w- I, how would I know what you need? Um, and so it's interesting the, the way she articulated because I feel it so differently, um, on a micro level, uh, you know, and it's so funny. We I say like, we'll go into a room, let's say we have a room, like a, a meet and greet room. I feel absolutely no responsibility to anyone in that room as far as their emotions. 
I feel a responsibility to the room as a as a group, but not individuals. But she feels enormous responsibility on the individual level. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it serves our audience to have those different levels of capability and awareness and understanding. And I think that's the sort of chemistry that we brought from the beginning. So here's a really interesting thing. And Beth, maybe you can respond to this when I when I'm finished. So typically, if you were to ask a two in private and they're being really vulnerable and open, right, transparent, and you just come up to them, you say, can you make anybody like you? They'll say, yeah. And it's like, a, you know, they're like, yeah, I can make anybody like me. And sometimes by being manipulative, flattering, um, you know, becoming the person they want me to be in the moment, being cheerful and giving, you know what I mean? And that's the sort of unhealthy calculated side of the two coming in to make people like them. And, um, and they also, I think, um, would, uh, because of that, think that, you know, I can win your love. And you know what I mean? So the not trusting love thing is interesting to me. Uh, and then also, uh, I think it's interesting that a one would assume it. Ones would tend to be more, uh, slightly more, I mean, less trusting than a two, right? They, they would be more like, hmm, I'm just going to be a little bit, I'm going to wait a little bit here. You know what I mean? Uh, and that's why I asked you about the high side of seven, because that sounds like the high side of seven, like, mm -hmm. like a seven walks into a room and they just assume that everybody likes them and they're surprised to find out someone didn't, you know what I mean? It's like, what? I just <laughs> I'm definitely, yeah, I'm definitely in the middle. If you whispered me that in my ear, I'd say, why, why would I want to, like, why do I need everyone in the room to like me? Maybe I don't like them. Maybe I don't want to be friends with them. Right. And that's what it means. Like highly individualized. If I like somebody, I absolutely want them to like me. If I don't, like them or don't care about them, then I absolutely feel no need for them to convince me. I did in my youth. Like I wanted to be that I was Jesse Spano and I wanted to be Kelly Kapowski desperately, but that's just not who I was. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, I'm Jesse Spano. That's who I am. Um, I am acquired taste and I've gotten very comfortable with that right. as I've gotten older. But Beth, don't you feel like, I mean, everybody likes to be liked, right? But do you feel like most twos that, yeah, but I really want to be liked. Yeah, I think we might on the trust factor be talking about the difference between liked and loved. I really mm -hmm. do want to be liked by everyone. And I absolutely could make almost anyone like me if I got a read on them and spent a few minutes with them. I spent a long time in that very unhealthy, I can be whatever you need me to be place. Mm -hmm. What I think I don't trust is that people will love me, that they'll show up for my needs, mm -hmm. that I can not be what they need in a particular moment and we will still have a relationship, you know, that I can have an off day and the world will keep going. I had a therapist once actually assigned me in college the task of skipping class and all of my responsibilities for the day. Just take a complete day off and do nothing, nothing productive. It was so hard. Mm -hmm. Um Wow. But a really powerful illustration for me that I came back and like no one was mad and <laughs> and I didn't fail out of my classes. There were no consequences whatsoever for having a day that I just enjoyed. Um, so that that lesson sticks with me. And I think that's where my trust factor. I still kind of feel like would the world keep spinning if I weren't like putting my finger on it, trying to help it move? I don't know. Um, and, and I think Sarah's helped me a lot around that. Mm. So you have written this new book, uh, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. It has gotten tremendous reviews. And I think folks now know why you wrote it, right? Because you are in this space of, you know, how do we engage in generative, not toxic discourse uh, around uh, politics, you know, and, you know, you know, in a world where friendships and families have been torn apart by everything, you know, and I think, uh, Sarah, you mentioned why, or one major reason why, which is that people no longer see their political affiliations as opinions separate from their identity. Mm -hmm. Now, when you uh, take on, it's like, you're not Ian Cron, who holds democratic, let's say Democrat, more progressive positions. It's like, no, that's who I am. And therefore the, the discourse becomes super hot because if you disagree with me, it's actually an attack on my identity. 
Yeah, I was super intrigued recently to see a a poll that both sides feel bullied by the other side. Like they feel attacked. And I think, gosh, in that posture, every personality crutch we all use is going to, you know, bubble up to the surface. And I think, you know, when we're talking about issues of trust and um, perceptions of being liked um, or if you're not liked fighting back, I think that's like a really big um, energetic situation in our politics right now is like, well, I might not be accepted, but at least I'm fighting back. Um, and, you know, what we realized, you know, over the course of doing our podcast and after our first book is that, you know, when you're talking about our polarized environment, you can't, you can't just paint with a broad stroke because, well, what am I talking about? Am I talking about a fight you got into with your coworker? Um, am I giving you advice about how to talk to your children? Are your children grown or are they little? Like, are we talking about your marriage? Are we talking about you getting involved with local politics? Like, there's just so many layers that you have to to work through. I would love the Enneagram equivalent of this. Like, every single, you know, there's so many, like, Enneagram in your marriage, Enneagram in your parenting. Um, but that's, that's right. it's the same concept, right? Like, well, it, it matters. It matters on what level you're engaging what's going on and what factors are at play and maybe how we can move the ball forward a little bit. So Beth, let's just talk about the bell curve. Okay. Oh, the bell curve. Uh, I think about it every day. Yeah. So (laughs) we have the, the mean area of the bell curve, right? It's just not the tails. It's just in the bell curve. Right. But when you get out on the tails of either political world, okay. And you start to run into the crazies, okay? And there are crazies on both sides. Oh, for sure. At least crazies from my perspective. You know, wild conspiracy theories, wild this. And it gets really strange out there, like in those two tales. How do you have a conversation with somebody? Listen, I'm just going to say this. I'm just going to put it out to you about how I feel. How do you talk to somebody rationally and in a caring fashion who is seemingly psychotic? It's not in the bell curve of conversation. It's out on the tails. I see it all the time. And I'm like, I can't cope with either tail personally, you know? So I don't know that our call is to cope with the tails as much as it is to say, can we hear in the bell get on the same page or close to the same page or at least get connected to each other enough to want to stay on the same page? I think the the problem right now that everyone feels is that the tails are leading and the tails are amplified constantly. We live in a country where by just the design of our systems, and we can debate the wisdom of that design for sure, but by the design of our systems, a few percentage points makes the difference between who wins or loses an election, what policy carries the day or fails. And so I think we approach all these conversations like we need to be figuring out the tales when what I think we need to do is just make clear that the tales are the tales, that there is this whole bell curve. There are so many people. If more of them could be less disgusted by the tales and more encouraged to show up and participate, we'd be in a very different environment in a very short amount of time because it does take just 6,000 people in this district voting differently or coming to vote for the first time or 30,000 people over there. We can we can move things in extraordinary ways without going to the tails and trying to uh, wear them down and lose ourselves in the process. Yes. So, and Sarah, you know, we uh, recently or not too long ago had, you know, Bill Haslam, the governor of Tennessee, uh, former governor of Tennessee, who's a very close friend of mine uh, on the show. Have we had him on twice or just, mm-hmm. we've had yep, him on twice. twice. Now, Bill, I would say, and he may correct me because he listens to the show, um, would say that he's he's certainly a Republican, but he's more of a centrist, right? And uh, who is, I would use the word ironic, uh, you know, just meaning that he's has more of a reconciling heart, right? Mm. Looking, looking for, he's got more of a reconciler. And, um, you know, what makes the tales so loud? And so popular is, is that on, in media, 
they're far mm -hmm. more entertaining than centrists. Centrists are not that entertaining. That you know what I mean? It's yeah. nuanced. It, you got to think about it. But they just don't tend to yell and scream and accuse people of eating babies in a you know in freaking you know uh, pizza parlor basements. And you know they're just not that fascinating, right? Whereas the others just they're not great politicians. They're just great entertainers. So what do you what do you make of that, sir? Is that true or is that what's happening? No, I mean, I think absolutely our media environment, particularly social media that rewards conflict driven, super engaging things that piss you off, that'll drive the clicks. No doubt about that. I mean, I don't think there's any debate at this point that that um, fuels a certain aspect of our media environment. But when you said the bell curve, I thought you meant the bell curve of middle age where people uh, <laughs> happiness bottoms out because uh, I'm 41. <laughs> And I say that just because I think it's actually relevant to this bell curve. Um, you know, when Beth was talking about uh, the therapist give, telling her to stop everything and it, how hard it was and how she realized, oh, life goes on. Like, I think that's what happened during the pandemic, right? People were, you know, against their will, assigned the task of not doing anything and thought, oh, all the stuff I thought I had to do to fuel my worth, I can actually step away. I can shut my business down and go on vacation. I can go to another career. And it opened up this this expansive thinking for some people, I think, around their identities. And I think that that bell curve and some people are pushed to the the, you know, that dropout of happiness for reasons. Age, being in the sandwich generation where you're taking care of your kids and your parents, poverty, um, mental illness. I mean, all the things in life that can make things hard and that in it in it. It doesn't open up for expansive thinking. Right. It closes everything down. It 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 hardens you. And so it pushes you to those extremes, political ideologies, because we don't have room in our lives for expansive thinking when we're stressed or um, struggling with something that we have little or to no control over when we've been abandoned by the social safety net or whatever is going on, right? If there's a global pandemic, for example. Um, and I think that when people get in those spots, it's, it's a system that sometimes rewards that, it's a media environment that rewards that. And it's just a psychological need. Like, make it easy on me. Tell me who's good and who's bad. Um, and then I will go and then I will, you know, follow that lead. And, you know, we've all seen people in our lives who have been sort of drawn to that siren song and who are angrier than you understood them to be and and have fallen for these sort of um, hard line political ideologies. And then something shifts, I think, all the time about um, a friend of my father's, she posted constantly about conspiracy theories and QAnon. And then she discovered um, some family she didn't know existed through like genetic testing. And it all stopped. It all stopped because she had a need that was being met by that. Now it was met by something else in a much healthier way, I would say. And she, it, it wasn't meeting that need anymore. And I think that's what we really, in our book, especially as we're working through all these, these levels of, of conflict and levels of relationship. You know, instead of saying, you know, I'm reading the the trauma book by Oprah and it's they're really pushing people to move from what's wrong with you to say what happened to you. And that is very helpful in trauma. It's also sort of helpful in politics mm. instead of starting from the what's wrong with you. Why would you feel that way? Why would you vote that way? Why would you support that politician to move to like, well, what happened? How did you get here? And that's, you know, that's the kind of questions we try to ask on Pantsuit Politics and we try to ask in our own relationships. Like instead of just that posture, which is, again, very hard for me, not surprising Enneagram One, I can lean all the way into like, what is wrong with you? Um, but it's just not productive. It doesn't move the needle. It doesn't open expansive thinking for you or for them. It's It just pushes people to those extreme ideologies. It pushes people to those wings instead of inviting them back in to the middle. Man, I I was thinking, and this isn't original to me, I don't think, but um, someone said to me that one of the questions that can dissolve a, you know, rapidly accelerating disagreement with somebody, politically speaking, is to ask the, to understand them, to ask them, well, tell me about your pain. Mm. Because, you know, if you say to somebody, let's say, uh, you know, tell me about your pain. Well, mm. you know, I, I'm taking care of my my mom and I'm, I'm you know, it's, I'm really concerned about the direction of the country. And so I'm tending to skew toward, 
you know, this political part, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, oh, now I see why you're coming from where you're coming from. Well, and listen to that point about people's personalities informing that. Believe me when I say successful politicians, Barack Obama and Donald Trump were both asked saying to people, tell me about your pain. Very Mm -hmm. different ways. They were doing it in very, very different ways. But that's what a certain subset of the population, probably based a lot on personality, heard those politicians say. That's why you have people who voted for both. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your pain. And can I just add that I think a a problem with our politics over the last 40 years that I've been alive has been how much we have centered that question. Tell me about your pain, which has morphed into tell me about your grievance, Mm because we can never do this in a real way. Every single person can't tell the president about their pain. So the, the flattened package version of that becomes tell me about your grievance. And we've lost any sense of tell me about your joy. When you were talking about Governor Haslam, what came to mind for me immediately, I loved his Drive to 55 initiative. He had this goal, 55% of Tennesseans being college educated by, I think, 2025, something like that. And it is so hard to marshal the kind of enthusiasm around a positive program like that versus getting people to laugh as I did this morning at a candidate for Congress referring to the United States as a banana republic and then showing that he meant the store, not the the Central American controversy. You know, it's it's just easier to like have a moment saying that guy's dumb instead of this program is ambitious and hard and overwhelming and could do tremendous good. There could be joy that comes out of politics. We've just trained ourselves to stay in that really negative space and to expect our politicians to speak only to the pain. Something Mm. that really bothers me about President Trump, and and I'm going to have a long list, but I've never seen him express anything like joy. Mm. And I, I think that's toxic telling. Yeah. And it's, and it sets a mood in the country that is, that is really difficult. That's fascinating because actually, um, we, uh, my wife Annie and I have gotten to know David Brooks and his wife Anne. And uh, David was at our home and he said something very interesting over dinner. He said, The thing that sometimes concerns me, and you know, David Stew's conservative, right? And he said that, but he's a he's a very nuanced, interesting thinker. I've, you know, he'll definitely criticize both sides when he he'll call out anybody, right? Um, but he he said, you know. Um, one of the things that concerned him about Donald Trump is he never saw him laugh out loud about something that wasn't at the expense of somebody else. else. Absolutely. And he was like, that, that scares me that I've never seen him just have a moment of joy and delight and laughter that was unrelated to, to someone else being put down or, you know, whatever, or, you know, deriding somebody. And I thought that is an amazing psychological insight. Yeah. No joy, no humility. That's a never, never laughing with, with openness and never saying I got that wrong. And that has scaled. The best marriage advice I ever got was to marry someone with whom I could laugh often and not at someone else's expense, Mm. because that's what relationship is built on. Right. And and we don't have any kind of political relationship that is built around happiness right now. It is it is all aren't we better than those folks? Aren't those folks scary? Um, and and nothing about like look at look how great our ideas are, um, and look how much we can do together. I think Democrats try really hard to put that message out there, uh, but it but it lands in this landscape that is not primed for it. Mm. So I want to talk about Sarah. Was it you who said you're married to a six? I am. I just want to talk about, for the sake of our sixes. Okay, we've talked <laughs> a lot about. We've been talking a lot about twos and ones. Um, and in as much as you can be uh, open about this without, you know, busting someone's, uh, you know, confidentiality. <laughs> you know, sixes, sixes have a really interesting relationship with authority. Oh, yes, they do. Um, and, they don't like it. <laughs> well, they may not like it if you're particularly if you're a counter, you know, if you're mm-hmm. counterphobic, if you're phobic, you tend to, well, sixes tend 
phobic sixes tend to submit rather than rebel and counterphobic sixes tend to rebel rather than submit mm -hmm. both out of fear and anxiety about the authority figure which which of those two is your is your husband um well it's really interesting so my husband is an attorney mm -hmm. um so i i still think he has he tends toward rebel the second he feels like someone thinks he ought to do something he is not going to do it mm. um or he feels like it's someone's telling him to do something but it's not like he can't you know follow the rules and absolutely understand that sort of fear-based thinking serves you pretty well if you're an attorney working on behalf of your clients um you know it's so funny i th it's such a fascinating i think that the enneagram as much as it helped me, I don't know if this is a one thing, but I find it difficult to um, really put myself in the way of thinking of someone else. My way of thinking is really powerful. <laughs> like the narrative in my head as a one is like really loud. I want somebody to say like, oh, it must be so intense in your head. And I said, you have no idea. Um, and so the Enneagram, like helping me see the way that he is like what's motivating him and what is driving him has really helped me um, sort of illuminate that better than I think I would have on my own. And, um, you know, my husband it is a, is a, is a um, anxious and fear-driven person, but not in a, you know, he's a Boy Scout. It serves him sometimes. <laughs> like he's a backpacker. You aren't going to find yourself with him anywhere in the woods where he has not prepared for any, in all catastrophes, our youngest son was just diagnosed with type one diabetes. And he was like, I feel like my whole life I've been preparing for this. Like he is, he, we're not going to leave the house without the right insulin. We're not going to leave the house with like enough of the, all the things. Right. So, um, it definitely serves him, but I think, you know, because I, um, am a more, and I don't know if this is a one thing, but I'm just more optimistic than he is. Like, I'm just definitely, more trusting of the universe than he is, whereas he is like, well, oh my gosh, this and this and this could happen. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's definitely what's seven. happening there. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the high side of seven again. And I think um, you actually just described sixes pretty well. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, it, I don't know what kind of lawyer what his specialization is, but you, you definitely want a lawyer who has thought through every worst case. Absolutely. The, every right. worst case. Yeah. This yeah. is why I tell people like, I'm just, I just play one on TV. You don't want me as your lawyer. Cause I'm going to be like, well, this is the right outcome. So this is probably what's going to happen. That's a terrible, <laughs> You want somebody that's like, I don't know this 1% chance we better prepare for it. But it's so funny. You know, we just, we had a, we have a, um, Tesla and I, I injured the Tesla. I would argue the robot injured the Tesla because it was driving, but whatever, we won't get into that. Um, I hit a, a cone and my husband, the Enneagram six, he's going to hate that. I tell the story, but I don't care. Um, he was like, that's going to cost $10,000. I was like, what are you talking about? He was like, there's probably cameras in there. And I was like, the side mirror of this Tesla is not going to cost. We don't even have the nice Tesla. We have the least nice Tesla. This is not going to cost $10,000. He was like, it is. And I was like, I bet you 600. I don't even remember what I bet. It. I was like, I bet you a million dollars. It will not, it will cost under $10,000. Obviously it did not cost $10,000, but that's just like in those moments. I'm like, I just, it's like, my brain is going six, six, six. It's just like his. <laughs> it, it's so fascinating in those moments. I'm always like, it must be so intense to be inside your head sometimes where it's like every yeah. catastrophe is playing at top volume and in technicolor. Yeah. Well, he's rehearsing for the worst. Yes. You know, when by saying that, right, it's like, okay, I got to get ready for the worst. It's going to be $10,000. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, Beth, you know, every relationship, whether it's a marriage, a business partnership, you know, co-writing a book, you know, doing a podcast together. Whenever two people are together, there's a power dynamic. There, there just always is. There's just no way out of it. What is the power dynamic in your relationship with an Enneagram one? Like, what is the, what is the power dynamic between a one and a two in work? I have to be careful because, you know, the power dynamic is usually that the one has more power. The, the one comes in and says, this is the way it should be. And I am very good at deference. Uh, because I want it because I want to be loved. And I believe that deference is required for loving. You know, I've, I'm working on this in myself where I can show my worst qualities 
is that when I am getting frustrated with that dynamic, my instinct is to withdraw Mm. and to shift the power dynamic by withdrawing. And in some ways, um, Sarah both rewards that in me and, and draws me out of it because when I withdraw, she will not have it. You know, she, she is like, what is happening? We need to talk through this. We need to fix it. What do we need to do to fix it? Um, so it rewards it a little bit. And I have to kind of check myself, like, don't do this to her. That's not fair. Um, it is also teaching me though, that we can have the conversation and she does not expect my deference. Um, we, we are partners and what I have to say matters to her, even if her, uh, you know, passion or her style overwhelms me in a conversation. It doesn't mean that she doesn't value me as an equal partner. So it's something that I'm working on all the time. Mm-hmm. Wait, do I get to answer too? Yeah, I want you to answer. <laughs> um, no, I think that's right. I think I've I've sensed that at times. And that's a hard thing as a one. People just don't think you can get your feelings hurt and they don't think you're paying attention, even though I don't know if it's my two wing, but I am highly attuned to when people are mad at me or now I might not respond because I might not think either I have no control over that. That's on them. Um, or they're mad for a stupid reason and that's on them, but I can, I always feel it. I know it. I mean, I don't know if that's true of all ones, but, um, I certainly do. I think it's, I don't think I understood with twos. And I think what I, I, the, the dynamic in our relationship, that's always hard is bec- it's that with sort of what you were naming, it's not, I don't feel like manipulation is too, e- too negative of a word. It's not what I mean. But that calculus that's always going on and you're like, well, they're, if, they're, if they're being caring and needing, shouldn't we always give into that? Like, isn't that always, it's kind of always painted as a positive, which is its own kind of power, right? Especially in a relationship with two women. To be the caring one, the, pe- the person that's always trying to take care of people and smooth out the conflicts is definitely its own type of power. Um, again, especially as two women. And mm. so I think like sort of always trying to figure out, well, is that like a good thing or is it hurting you? Is it like, where should I, st- when I'm like pushing and saying like, well, what should we do here or whatever? It does feel like they struggle with it. And also I think there's a sense of, you know, and, and I think it depends on which Enneagram they're talking to, but when you assume, you know, what somebody else needs, there is a power dynamic there. Right. And like, you know, I think especially if it's a somebody that like doesn't, I would assume like with a like an eight, if they don't want to feel like you know what they need or you don't, they don't want you to think that they need something at all. Um, I think that there's, again, I, there's this perception that that's um, always, always caring and loving and meeting a need. But I think depending on the personality, I always tell the story we were at a backstage one time and <laughs> because she is so, you know, you know, caring and wants to help people. We were sort of like the backstage talent. And she asked this guy, now, what can I do to make your job easier? And I think he about fell over from shock. Either he'd never heard that from like a talent, quote unquote, backstage, or maybe never heard it in his life, but he was flabbergasted. He was like, I don't, it was like, she spoke a second language that he did not understand this poor man had never been asked. Could could she do anything for him? Like, and it was just so interesting, like to see that play out and watch like, oh yeah, like sometimes that really upsets the apple cart for people. If you're just trying to meet their needs, like, and it's, it's been, it's, it's always kind of an interesting, interesting back and forth, depending on the personality, even with my personality, that flow of energy coming from it too. Mm. It's subtle, huh. right? It's not as, it's not as forceful, obviously. Yeah. I can say I had to learn. You know, I started my career as a practicing attorney. I really had to learn how to have an assistant. I I had no idea how to have an assistant. And I had to learn that me wanting to meet her needs sometimes felt like disrespect to her, disrespect of her professionalism and her position. Mm. Um, And it, it was a it was a journey for sure. Wow. What an insight for twos mm-hmm. to hear to hear that, that sometimes. Uh, and I think that's what the, part of the problem is that twos read other people's needs, right? Or perceived needs. Mm-hmm. They meet them without thinking about what are the potential consequences of my being quote unquote nice, mm-hmm. you know, mm. it's like that, well, you know, it's like, oh, well, it could come back and slap you in the face, uh, whether it's well-intended or not. Right. So, sh- you know, I'm always telling people, I'm always telling myself more than anybody else, check your motivations, check mm check your motivations. 
because you know the human capacity for self-deception is amazing you know uh, i'm daily amazed at my ability to you know to misread my own intentions and Mm -hmm. motivations you know they appear really great until you know they come back and the universe slaps me in the face for so it. true you know hey everybody we're speaking uh to my new friends uh we're talking with uh sarah stewart holland and with beth silvers authors of the new book now what how to move forward when we're divided about basically everything and here's i'm gonna i'm gonna end here with a couple of questions for you folks have you ever asked yourself um, what do we do when our lives seem completely mired in conflict, particularly when we're having conversations around politics? How do we find connection when our differences are constantly on display and even exacerbated by algorithms and echo chambers on your favorite news sites? And how do we just simply build a kinder world you know, in, in which to live? If you are asking those questions, and Anthony, I ask those questions a lot. How about you? I do. I absolutely do. Then you need to go and get a copy of now what, how to move forward when we're divided about basically everything. I've loved this conversation in particular, because I think everything we've spoken about will be helpful, not only to ones and twos, right? But it is a great conversation for those two types, uh, for people who love ones and twos. Um, but, but also about the broader implications of how can we move forward in the world when we have two completely mm. different vantage points and, uh, and live in a way that brings peace and generosity and uh, spirits of reconciliation and understanding. So you guys, thank you so much. I also want to remind people that you are the hosts of the wonderful uh, podcast, uh, Pantsuit politics so everybody needs to go check that out and on uh socials guys remind people what they are you can find us on instagram at pantsuit politics twitter limits your characters we're just pantsuit politic there no (laughs) s uh and everything uh, all all roads are open on our website pantsuitpoliticsshow.com that will help you find us everywhere wonderful well guys keep up the good work thanks for the service you're doing in the world typology friends Please, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, may you have rest. Until next time.